Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure today to uh, have read and to talk to the author of uh, Don't Tell Me uh, to Wait, How the Fight for Gay Rights Changed America and Transformed Transformed Obama's Presidency. Carrie Elleveld, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Heath. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for the interesting book. Uh, Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Before we get to it, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you've been in the past, where you are now. Uh, Who are you? Sure. So I've been a journalist for about 20 years. Uh, I spent uh, the first five years of that working in local regional business journals. Uh, And then I went back to school, got my master's uh, at UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and, and started covering politics and uh, I ended up moving to New York, and the first um, job that I ha- job offer that I had in New York came from a local LGBT publication uh, called the New York Blade, and I took it. And I thought I would do it for a year or two, and then maybe you know try to jump back into mainstream reporting, something like that. And it just—I mean, it was just such an exciting time, actually, to be reporting on LGBT issues, and the more I reported on them, the more committed I got to the subject matter, uh, to my readership, and um, that was 2006 that I took that job. By 2007, the, you know, uh, primary between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton started to heat up, and I moved to a national LGBT magazine, The Advocate, um, and uh, had the great good fortune to start reporting on that primary battle, uh, during which every vote counted, and the candidates very much reached out to their progressive constituencies, I think, uh, in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have if it hadn't just, you know, dragged on for um, over a year. So anyway, uh, and then when, when Obama won, I, I managed to get a couple interviews with him during uh, the campaign, mostly because of that heated primary battle, uh, which I think very much worked to the benefit of uh, LGBT uh, rights activists. And uh, when President Obama won and went to the White House in 2009, I uh, relocated uh, to Washington, D.C. and began to cover the White House uh, and President Obama. So that gives you a little bit of a feel. I, I reported, uh, you know, on the first few years of his presidency there and then um started, uh, you know, in 2012 to, to, I was looking back at all that had happened and, and, and there was more to come, but even at that time in 2012, it seemed to me like there'd been a political tipping point on LGBT issues in Washington. And, uh, you know, when I came there, they were toxic going in. And when I left there in 2013, they were, they were seen as a, as a winning issue for Democrats. Uh, and that is the reason um, that I wrote the book, that I, I was pretty sure I had witnessed something extraordinary in a short amount of time. Uh, and so there you have it. Yeah, no, it's it's so interesting. So you, I mean, you've had the chance to interview 
the president of the United States, and, and now you have the chance to talk to me about your book. I'm not sure if this has been the most um, disappointing day for you or the most exciting day for me, but it's such a pleasure to talk to someone who, who's had this, this opportunity. I mean, I, so few people actually get to do this, be face-to-face with the president, and I want to talk about that. But before we get to that, before we get to some of these, um, you know, the, the, the information that, that you collected firsthand, uh, your book is about a transformation of the Obama presidency. But as you just mentioned, you, you start during the campaign. Um, I wonder if you would recount for us. I mean, it's not that far in the past, but but yeah, I just I found in in reading the book, I, I, I was struck by oh, the things that I have forgotten. So where were the two Democratic candidates on, on gay rights issues during 2008? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this big tactical Oh, maybe call it a mistake. The Obama campaign made in in planning a particular rally during during the campaign. So take us take us back there first. Sure. Well, this was an all out battle between Hillary Clinton uh, and Barack Obama for the LGBT constituency. And Hillary Clinton, when she started to, you know, to sort of lose the battle. Um, up the ante and really started to put the pressure on by doing as many uh, interviews as she could, especially with the LGBT newspapers and reporters, uh, in part because that was a constituency that favored her. Um, somewhere, you know, in the 60th percentile, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was around 65 percent of LGBT voters tended to prefer um, uh, Hillary Clinton over Obama. And so she very much needed to hang on to those votes. And where they were on the issues was really pretty darn close to each other. Um, you know, it was a little bit splitting hairs. And, and what I found in general was that, like most voters, LGBT voters tended to like one or the other of them, uh, more so based on their sensibilities or their style or whatever. And then they filtered all of these things, you know, all of the input through those lenses and came out with a positive conclusion for whichever candidate they liked the most. Um, so, uh, but in terms of the issues, they were both, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were pro-civil unions and, and not supportive of same-sex marriage or marriage equality. Um, they both wanted to repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, but, uh, this is, this may be getting into too much detail, but, but, uh, Senator Clinton at the time wanted to, repeal just Section 3 of Defense of Marriage Act, which was the section that prohibits the federal government from um, from recognizing same-sex marriages. And, uh, and Barack Obama wanted to repeal the whole thing. Now, depending on who you liked more, you thought one was great and one was horrible. Um, it was arguably more strategic to just try to repeal Section 3 because uh, Section 3 was the only section that dealt with the federal government Section two is the section that dealt with states not having to recognize um, marriage, the same sex marriages of other states. So that would allow more, I think, support from people who wanted this, you know, from candidates or politicians who wanted the states to be in control of, of what they had to recognize, but wanted to make sure that gays and lesbians, same sex couples got the, the full benefits of the federal rights. Um, uh, but, you know, if you were an Obama supporter, then you thought, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton was just being uh, calculated and and, you know, sacrificing um, the the real prospect of full equality for the sake of something that was strategic and calculated. 
Um, in terms of don't ask, don't tell repeal, they both they, or don't ask, don't tell, they both re- favored repealing um, the the gay ban, the ban on um, gay and lesbian service members uh, serving openly in the military. So they were actually quite close on the issue, um, and I think the the um, the issue that or the the little snafu is <laughs> more than a snafu. I'll tell you that, but. The, the, the problem that the Obama campaign ran up against, which is something that they would run up against later, um, you know, as they planned the inauguration for the president uh, elect at that point, and and even even again it came up in in, uh, in other areas of the administration, was that uh, they enlisted a guy named uh, uh, a a pastor named Donnie McClurkin to head a gospel tour that was happening in South Carolina. And they had put together this sort of faith and family gospel tour in South Carolina, the Obama camp had, um, in order to try and woo South Carolina voters and especially appeal to South Carolina's black voters uh, to support him in, in the primary. And at the time that they were putting together, I mean, this seems like a no-brainer, but at the time that they were putting together, Hillary Clinton still had more support at that point among black Americans than than um, than Barack Obama did. So they put this together and it seems like a great idea. You have this gospel tour through South Carolina. But Donnie McClurkin was a um, particularly divisive figure in that he had, uh, you know, sort of proclaimed that at one point he had some, uh, you know, he had struggled or wrestled with uh, issues of gay attractions, uh, same-sex attractions to men, and he had, you know, I'm just, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but mm-hmm. he had yep. found God, and uh, you know, God, and and God had led him to the, you know, the right path, and that he was no longer afflicted by those attractions um, because of his faith, you know, in in God and Jesus Christ, and etc. And of course, this was a real problem. Um, for the LGBT constituency and for gay voters. I mean, this was uh, religion just over and over again had been used to browbeat, you know, the um, LGBT folks and, and really in, and, and harass them. And, uh, and so many folks, I think, especially in the South, um, just felt the bitter sting of what it's like to have um the Bible used against you and something that you, you know, the sort of the love that you feel in your heart, what makes you, what makes you fundamentally human. Um, And so it was a real problem. And essentially what the, you know, when it came up, I mean, this is how I ended up getting my first interview with Barack Obama. I had been harassing them for an interview. And I often say that getting an interview with a politician is a lot like uh, being in a bad relationship. You just throw yourself again and again and again uh, mm-hmm. at that person until they finally decide they need you, right? And and when this sort of, when the choice of Donnie McClurkin blew up in their face, they they decided they needed me. They needed a... And let me yeah. let me ask you, right before you get to that, because, because I just wanted to set up that interview just with a little bit more about the exact thing that, that you were just describing. Sure. Um, which, which is that your book is, isn't just about the sort of the, the formal politics of campaigns, you also write so much about the role of activists and, and really the changing landscape of digital media. Mm-hmm. So in, in just talking a little bit more about the setup for this first interview that, that you got, it, it wouldn't have happened if not for 
the 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 political environment that uh, that that had evolved in 2008. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about who some of the insiders were in the sort of the, the activist blogging digital media community that 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 were able to um, take what what could have been a an issue that just sort of floated away and and raised attention to it because if not for that it would be unlikely that the candidate would have reacted in the way the way that he did so tell us about some of those those people that you must have known very well at the time well you know so you're very much right about this with the exception of one thing some of these folks i didn't know yet um i mm. knew of them and and hadn't met them uh, and and in some cases didn't know them at all but these were the bloggers uh, and you know, the bloggers played a very important role, as you are uh, suggesting here, especially in the LGBT community, especially in 2007, 2008. You know, bl- blogging had become, I think, a real political force. But, you know, LGBT folks, and I don't have any stats on this, but, but I've, know, I've read about it enough to, to have a sense that LGBT folks had, were sort of early uh, adopters of the Internet and using that technology to connect, right? Because mm-hmm. um, especially mainstream publications and whatever didn't often didn't cater to LGBT folks because it was such a small slice of the of the American people. And so, uh, blogs and the internet had become a way for LGBT folks to connect um, and find community in a way that they sometimes couldn't find, especially if they were in a small southern town or a midwestern town or whatever. Uh, And so they they were very important. They had a lot of readership. Um, People were very politically active in this way in terms of the readership and the comments and things like that. And so when when this uh, when this choice of Donnie McClurkin came up, there was a blog called America blog. And I ended up becoming actually quite good friends with one of the main bloggers there, Joe Sudbay. But at the time, I did not know him. And the um, editor, editor-in-chief editor of the blog at the time was John Aravosis. And I also had not met him. But he got wind of the fact that Donnie McClurkin had been chosen and had already had some of these, um, you know, these issues arise. And it had already been scrutinized to some extent in 2004 because I think he was invited uh, to to um, to sing at the na- at the Republican National Convention, if I remember correctly, and and you know the the issue of his same tra- sex attractions had come up in a different way in that realm, right? Which was why are right. we having this this guy who's who's had uh, you know quote unquote problems with homosexuality uh, sing at 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 a Republican event? I mean, I think that was sort of the frame of it. So John Aravosis, um, who who had a a very strong uh, D.C. following because he was D.C. based and politically based and they wrote about mainstream issues, too, uh, but also had a very strong LGBT following. Uh, Both he and Joe Sudbay were gay. And uh, he he noted um, that this that Donnie McClurkin had this these issues and brought it up and put it on his blog and said, this is a real problem for the Obama administration. This isn't that, you know, this isn't what I would call a new, I mean, again, I'm paraphrasing here, but this isn't, this isn't what anyone would expect from a a new civil rights leader. The guy who's going to usher in a new civil rights era uh, is to have this particular singer headlining his events. And that's not only, you know, that's not only bad, 
bad optics, but it's just plain divisive. It's a divisive way. It's a it's a divisive thing for, for black Americans and LGBT Americans who didn't always see eye to eye on things. Um, if you're trying to unite the party, this is not the way to do it. And it sort of blew up from there. Um, Pam Spaulding, a blogger in North Carolina uh, who had uh, a blog called Pam's House Blend. Um, she's uh, she's black. She's lesbian. Um, she had a very, very strong and outspoken grassroots following picked up on this. Um, on this post from John Aragosis and, uh, you know, and in her very pithy, very sassy way uh, said, this is just, this is not okay. Uh, and, and it blew up from there. And I think this is a, this was a situation where the normally under normal circumstances, it may have been sort of a blip, you know, there may have been sort of a 24 hour outcry, maybe, one of the major LGBT groups would have said, we don't like this or something like that. But it, it, it literally dragged on for, um, I think, about 10 days or so, uh, it, getting mainstream headlines, getting coverage in uh, places like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, and, you know, that was a lesson to be learned for the campaign that, that LGBT bloggers can actually blow something up into mainstream headlines. Um, and, you know, they're sort of forced to, to contend with. And, and that's how I ended up getting the interview because he was taking on President, I mean, Senator Obama at the time was taking on so much water for this choice um, that they reached out to me and said, let's do, let's do an interview. And, and what was, what was that, that like? This is a Senator at the time. Uh, uh, in the middle of a campaign, uh, you, you traveled to Chicago to do the interview. Yeah. What, what was what was what was covered? What what did you expect to to discover in the interview, and and what what was the eventual outcome of it? Right. Well, so just just to uh, clarify a touch, um, I I did this interview, and this interview was actually on the phone. Um, I did a second interview with President Obama later uh, in the campaign, for which I did go to the headquarters. Um, so okay, right. So I not to I mean, you know, look, if I hadn't lived it, I wouldn't remember it either. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but but anyway, um, so I so I did this phone interview with him. And, you know, the main the main issue um, was there were two main issues. Um, did did you vet this guy? Right. And and uh, President Obama, I mean, sorry, Senator Obama at the time said, well, we didn't vet him to the extent that I would like to have vetted him. Um, and. And, but the other issue was they decided to keep him on the tour, even though, you know, headlining the tour, even after this blow up. And I basically said to him, and, you know, this was this was not this was not an easy thing for me to say to him. You know, I'm look, I was a I'm I'm a sort of white middle class American. I grew up in Michigan and very aware of the privileges that I had being born, um, you know, to white middle class parents. And I'm covering a, a man who could be the first uh, black president of the United States who has fought through all sorts of uh, racial uh, tensions and difficulty and whatever to rise up to, to where he is. And and so but I but I knew this was a real problem uh, that, you know, he kept talking about uniting people and building bridges. And there was no doubt in my mind that there was a, that this was a, that this was divisive. And I said to him something close to, 
you know, haven't you essentially, uh, by keeping Donnie McClurkin on the tour, chosen your Christian constituency over your LGBT constituency? Um, and he just, you know, flat out rejected that. Um, but this was a tension um, between Christians and, and also, you know, African-American Christians and the LGBT constituency that would arise again and again uh, in his, you know, in his can't in his campaign and also during his presidency. Now, you uh, the um, Senator Obama wins, becomes President Obama, and you have another opportunity to interview him in in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you pushed him again on on the DOMA issue. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the interview, you have what you describe as a eureka moment. Right. Would you walk us through uh, that interview and and how what sta- sounded like it started out as a as a rather uh, non-committal, um, typical interview that you would you would have with a with a uh, uh, sitting president turned into something uh, different? Sure. Well, so <laughs> once again, I mean, I, I, I you, there's a lot of there's hard work involved with getting these big interviews because you keep asking, you keep asking. But then there's a moment, there's a moment where sometimes you get lucky, right? And I had been asking that he had, the president uh, and his aides had not granted a one-on-one interview with an LGBT journalist during the first two years of his presidency, which is different from what he had done. He had done those interviews um, with other constituency press, like the the African-American press and um uh, he'd done it with some of the with some of the um, Spanish language media outlets. Um, so he he ended up giving a blogger interview at one point where he included Joe Sudbay uh, in October of 2010. This was before the midterms. They were White House was trying to stoke, um, you know, some uh, some progressive uh, uh, turnout at the polls. But anyway, uh, he had not done a one-on-one interview with an LGBT journalist, and I think really his, you know, they were the activists had been had been so forthrightly confronting the White House, confronting the president, um, that there were a lot of questions that they did not have good answers to. One was his position on marriage. One was what they were going to do on "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Were they going to repeal it as he had pledged? And when they when they finally get, and I don't, I, sh- I don't mean to credit this entirely to the White House, but it is a big win for the White House, right? I mean, there were a lot of people involved with this win. But when they finally get Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal done four days before the end of the 111th Congress and before Republicans would take over the House of Representatives and basically ch- put a choke hold at that point on all progressive uh, legislation for the rest of his presidency, they have a reason to celebrate. And that's when I get the interview, uh, the Oval Office interview. And, you know, it's really so that he can take a victory lap. Right. And they give me 10 minutes. That's what they originally allotted me was 10 minutes. And I'm thinking, gosh, 10 minutes is nothing, um, given that there's two years that have passed. And there were two more years that we wanted to get some idea, some gauge for how committed the president would be and what he might have, you know, anticipate doing on LGBT issues. And I think they were really quite afraid of me backing him in the cor- into the corner on his position uh, on marriage equality, which was still that he supported civil unions and did not uh, support same-sex marriage. So uh, 10 minutes was, to me, a way of saying, and if you 
if you, we get into any territory that we don't like what's happening, we're just going to shut the interview down. I mean, that's not what they said to me, but that was the signal as far as I was concerned. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I, I, I plan the interview out. I do my best. I figure he's going to take, um, you know, probably a five minute victory lap on don't ask, don't tell, which he did. And I decided I would just let him, him have that uncontested and not rehash that history. Um, uh, because it was a win for everyone. Uh, and that, But then I would try to really nail him down on what else he might be able to do through his executive power since we were going to lose the House. We were going to have a much slimmer majority in the Senate in terms of Democrats. What could he do through his executive powers um, to help LGBT people? And we talked a little, um, you know, it was hard to nail him down. Um, I decided I did push him on marriage, but I did not back him into a corner on it um, because I felt like it was so important to get some other answers on what he could do. Um, Because, you know, coming out for same-sex marriage would have been a huge symbolic win, but it wouldn't have brought at that point any more rights to same-sex couples for for the president to come out. Huge symbolic win, but, you know, not something substantive in terms of the legal rights. So what he could do is he could do executive orders, right? Um, He also at that point could have stopped, could have ordered his Justice Department to um, stop defending the Defense of Marriage Act. And as I mentioned before, this is the law that is prohibiting the federal federal government from uh, recognizing same-sex marriages and giving the the 1,100 federal benefits that flow from marriage to a couple, including immigration rights and uh, taxes and Social Security survivor benefits and all of these things that, that come with marriage to help form a safety net for a couple. And anyway, uh, so I, I got through, you know, they ended up letting the interview, his aides ended up letting the interview go a good bit more than 10 minutes. Um, in fact, it got into sort of the, the, the 17, 18 minute region and they called last question. So that's that's when you get your final question. And so I was just I hadn't heard him give me anything specific other than I'll use my bully pulpit to, you know, push LGBT issues further. And I didn't feel like there was anything that we, you know, that we could really pin to him or nail him down on um, that he said he would absolutely do. And so I said, well, I, I just asked him a very big open up ended question where I said, You know, this is a very historic time that we're living in. If there's anything that you can do over the next two years, what is the biggest thing you could possibly you think you could possibly do for LGBT folks going forward um, in your power as president? And he kind of he took this long winded answer. And at one point and I interrupted him and said, but I think people are wondering what you can do. And he said, Carrie, I'm trying to answer your question, but you keep coming back at me. I mean, you know, I had to apologize to him. Mm-hmm. He was kind of saying, can you just shut up and listen? I mean, that's not what he said, but that's kind of what he was saying. So anyway, I sat back and he said a lot of different things. And still at the end of that answer, I still hadn't heard anything we could totally nail him down on. And finally, it just at the very end, when he had finished his answer, I said, I just like it kind of just slipped out before I even knew it had happened. I just said, what about not defending the Defensive Marriage Act? And and it's AIDS were not happy with me because I had sort of, you know, thrown this last question protocol to the wind and, and asked him another question, which is way out of line. And, 
And he said, well, he said, you know, as I said before, I have a lot of very smart lawyers looking at this. And I think it's something we're going to have to strategize uh, about over the coming you know, weeks and months. And that was an absolute departure from what Robert Gibbs and every other White House official had been saying about the Defense of Marriage Act for two years straight, which was uh, which was the Justice Department is doing what it does, which is defend laws duly enacted by Congress. And that was the party line. That was the White House line. It came down over and over again. So when the president said, I have a lot of really smart lawyers looking at this, we're going to have to strategize about it. I walked out of there and knew immediately that that was an important moment. Um, so um, that was, you know, and, and I don't know, sometimes maybe the last question, the question you didn't plan on asking becomes the best. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, it's, you know, and, and I think, in, you know, there's so much more in the book, but what I was really struck by is is how how um the book really serves as a as a training manual for how to do interviews. Um, I think you're just so candid and, and honest about how you prepared to to do these interviews and and how um you know how the messages you get from political handlers uh, need to be interpreted by uh, political reporters like yourself, academics as well who who do similar kinds of interviews, maybe with slightly different purposes, but, but, uh, I learned so much just, just from that, uh, those pieces of it. Um, I enjoyed the book. Uh, the book again is, uh, don't tell me to wait how the fight for gay rights changed America and transformed um, Obama's presidency. The author is Carrie Ellaveld. The publisher is basic books. Carrie, thank you very much for your time today. Keith, thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. 